Welcome to session three of the Bible in a Year commentary. If you're starting this on the 1st of January, then today should be the 3rd of January. Today we'll be looking at Genesis 8 to 11 and then Psalm 3. So far in Genesis, we read about the creation of the earth and humanity. Adam and Eve were given a mandate to spread God's order across the earth, but they choose to do things their own way. This started the fall and led to a downward spiral of death and violence. And humanity continued to pollute itself with wickedness, creating chaos where God intended order. This reached its peak when some human women tried mating with spiritual beings to create immortal spiritual human children, the Nephilim. At this, God decides that things have gone too far and chooses to undo the work he's done. Picking Noah to carry on the human race as it was meant to be, God sends a flood to wipe out the rest of humanity. And so we pick up today with Noah and his family in an ark on the flood waters. And so the flood waters reside. Noah, his family and the animals are once again on dry land. Noah offers to God a sacrifice and God gives Noah his blessing. The chaos that humanity had created has been washed away. God has restored it to good and it looks like humanity is once again working with God as it should be. God encourages Noah and his family with the original mandate he gave Adam and Eve. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Compare this with Genesis 1. We also get the first example of God making a covenant with his people. In church circles, the word covenant is often over-spiritualized. In this ancient context, a covenant was simply a legally binding contract. But don't let that undercut the importance of this moment. The creator of heaven and earth is willing to commit himself to his people. In this example, he's promising to never wipe out creation with a flood again. But the effects of the fall begin to show themselves again. Noah gets drunk and his son Ham takes advantage of this. From the text, it's clear that something worse than just taking a look at his dad's naked body happened. Later on in Leviticus, we're going to read that uncovering a man's nakedness meant sleeping with his wife. This could suggest that Ham was making a play at being the leader of the family by sleeping with his father's wife. Very different times indeed. If Canaan was the child that came from Ham's betrayal, then this is perhaps why the writer emphasizes that Ham is the father of Canaan and why Noah curses Canaan for what happened. Either way, what is clear is the brokenness of humanity is still very much an issue. We then speed forward as one family becomes many. The author begins listing the various descendants of Noah, but these aren't random people. Each of these names represents a different tribe or nation. In the list, we see all the different people groups that were known at the time. One name that is given special mention is Nimrod. This guy is an incredible hunter, but he also begins to form the first empire. He starts his empire in Babel, which will later become Babylon, and builds many more cities. One important one is Nineveh in the land of Assyria. Anyone who's familiar with the Old Testament will know these two cities, Babylon and Nineveh, along with Egypt and the Philistines all who appear in this list. They're all going to become quite important as future enemies of God's people. The issue is, when God told humanity to be fruitful and multiply, he wanted them to spread out their creativity. He wanted to see different tribes and cultures pop up, each looking slightly different, but all united in their humanity. Empires do away with this. They aim to spread one homogenized culture wherever they go, removing the individual identity. This continues to the point where the people of the earth are developing new technologies, such as brick, 
Someone had to develop it. And building great cities. They decide to build a giant tower. This may not seem significant, but during this time, mountains were where heaven meets earth. These giant towers were like man-made mountains. In other words, they were building a tower to make their own way back to heaven. God notes that at this rate, humanity would spend the rest of eternity working together to take back their immortality at force. There was no chance for a relationship between humanity and God when they're like this. So God divides up humanity into different groups of people with different languages. Able to communicate with one another easily and now part of separate groups, humanity would now focus on dealing with one another rather than openly challenging God. Not that they were ever really a threat. It's not made clear in this passage, but later on in Deuteronomy 32 verse 8, we see that God actually disinherited the nations here. By this we mean that he decided he would no longer be God to these people. Instead he put angels, key spiritual beings, in charge of the nations and that these spiritual beings would deal with the nations that he didn't have to. The fall is now complete. Not only did humanity reject God in Genesis 3, but they showed their willingness to pollute themselves in Genesis 6. Now they've brought God to the point where he would rather break up his own kingdom and creation than let them continue as they were. So what's next? Well, we get a brief glimpse at the end of Genesis 11. See, when God wiped out humanity with a flood, he chose one family to carry on his purpose, Noah and his children. Now that God has disinherited or disowned humanity, he turns to a new family to fulfill his purpose, a family that didn't yet exist, but would all start with one man named Abraham. So let's have a look at Psalm 3. This psalm is attributed to King David when he had to flee from his son Absalom. See, 2 Samuel 15 to 19. The idea was that either David wrote the psalm or someone else wrote it as they were meditating on this story. A poem working through the emotions David must have been feeling at that time. The psalm is categorized as a lament psalm, which actually makes up over a third of all psalms. See the Psalms 22 and Psalms 88 for other examples of lament psalms. Biblical lament is whenever a person takes their pain, hurts and frustrations before God. It tends to include four steps. Turning to God, bringing the complaint before God, making a request of God, and then declaring trust in God. We'll see this in the structure of Psalm 3. As always, here is a summary of the structure, but I would recommend checking out the written version of this commentary in the description to see the structure properly. So in verses 1 and 2, we get the complaint. In verses 3, we get the writer declaring their trust in God. Verses 4 and 5, they remember what God has done before. In verse 6, they declare trust in God again. In verse 7, they ask God to rescue them and defeat their enemies. And finally, in verse 8, they declare trust in God again. This psalm was typically sung in the morning. It opens with a reminder that sometimes it seems like we're surrounded by opposition. Opposition that is declaring there's no hope for us. The response to this is to declare the truth of who God is. We can support this with reminding ourselves of the goodness he's done to us in the past. We do not need to be afraid because God has answered us and sustained us in the past and he will do it again. The psalmist then invites God into this pain and struggle to rescue them and strike down their opposition. Finally, the psalmist ends challenging the lies the enemy has spoken over them. In Psalm 3 verse 2, the opponent declared there is no salvation for them. But in Psalm 3 verse 8, they respond, salvation belongs to the Lord.